Thank you for listening to the Spare Change Podcast. Finance knows no limits. Today I talk with Daniel Kopp about financial therapy and the ways in which we interact emotionally with money. Hello and welcome to Spare Change Podcast. Today I have on Daniel Kopp. Daniel, you are a CFP, is that correct? Yes, I am. Awesome. And one of the things that we talked about, so for those who don't know, I met you at Mill Money Con, and one of the things that I became interested in that you had to talk about is financial therapy and what all that entails. One of the things that interested me was I have a background where my family wasn't really good with money in some aspects, but they were really good in other aspects. So we had business owners, we had people who were really successful at, you know, building a community and selling something, but also our personal interactions with each other with money became kind of restrictive or prohibitive because money was like always the concern over what's the moral option or what's what's the best thing for everyone. Um, I'd definitely love to hear what some of your experience in the field has shown you or taught you and then just kind of give a brief explanation of you know what is financial therapy if that's able to be put in a box like that <laughs> oh man we're gonna what a great kind of opening there uh for context for the audience so my primary role is as a, a financial planner so i run a fee-only practice and i specialize in working with active duty military uh, on one side of the practice and then younger widows on the other side sometimes mingled together with gold star widows so my work involving financial therapy is kind of cross-disciplinary so I don't, I don't necessarily go around telling everybody that I'm a financial therapist but what I've done is gotten a master's at Kansas State University in their financial therapy program and so as I work with clients and their money and build financial plans inevitably emotional themes stories from our past rules sometimes they only live in the subconscious around money come into play so the way we can think about this is imagine there's a coin that has two sides so we'll say one side is the exterior work of finances personal finance and the other side is the interior work okay so it's the same coin so we're always talking about money but there's kind of you can see one side at one time and one side at the other time Within that, then you have past, present, and future. So let me give an example. So in the exterior work of personal finance, in the past, you might have last year's tax return. In the present, you might have this month's budget, cash flow plan. In the future, you have savings for retirement or your TSP or something like that, right? Then the interior work, you also have past, present, and future. Future is probably something we're all familiar with, right? That's our goals. So maybe that's paying for a vacation that we go on next year or saving for a down payment on our house or, again, that long-term retirement goal, say paying for kids' college, something like that. So that's the future. And the present, right, that's staying emotionally centered, grounded. And then there's the past. This is really where so much of financial therapy has helped me work with clients is dealing with the emotional, psychological challenges that are intertwined with money. And we can talk more about what that looks like, but we all have these things that sometimes become challenging for us as we relate to money, right? Money skill sets. So that's where financial therapy is. And I, again, I don't go around, I'm not diagnosing, I'm not prescribing, I'm not treating, so I'm not a therapist in that sense. But I'm borrowing, I'm taking these evidence-based interventions from the world of mental health and just using it and then I work with clients and their money. 
I think that's an interesting concept. You broke it down to, you know, some some of your personal goals versus all of the things that we need to uh, prepare for money-wise. And then just the aspect of, you know, you've got examples all through your life of financial, whether it's reward-based or punishment-based, whether it's something you're aversive to or something you're appetitive to. And I think a lot of that plays into behavioral economics. And, you know, every example and every situation that you can end up financially affects the next interaction that you have with a financial situation. Oh, yeah. Um, so if, if you let financial situations get ahead of you and it starts to become impact after impact, a lot of people get buried in this hole of, well, everything that I do financially puts me in a worse spot. So how am I supposed to climb out of it? And I, I see a lot of times where people have, you know, a few problems that might be, you know, resolvable from an outside perspective, but when it all piles up on somebody, they might run into difficulty seeing clearly what their next step might be. Um, yeah. As far as strategies and, you know, preparing yourself for a life event, preparing yourself for potential financial issues, what would you say is the best strategy for not reading into the future, but planning ahead for what might be next. Yeah, we are humans, so that means inevitably we're certainty-seeking machines, <laughs> right? We want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, and that's just a very part of who we are as people, as humanity. But yet, it doesn't matter how much we try to throw at it. I mean, the biggest quant firms, I mean, prognosticators anybody wants to try to predict the future and then inevitably it ends up surprising us so we have to reconcile with this tension we want to know what's going to happen we are building a financial plan or working in our lives for things in the future yet at the same time recognizing that we cannot yet fully know what the future will bring let me give you a quick example right so who was dawson black 10 years ago right you think back man i've changed so much from that person matured and grown physically mentally emotionally spiritually all those kind of components that come together but yet you imagine yourself 10 years into the future and you're like oh well i'll be mostly the same just a little bit different and that that's our one of our biases you mentioned behavioral economics there is to, to anchor to our present reality and project it forever into the future rather than recognizing how much things can change so uh, you know, we all look for that magic certainty button just <laughs> to push, like, I want to know sure what's going to be in the future. So what we really should do instead is take one small step at a time, whether that's a day-by-day -day approach or, you know, a smaller approach to life, recognizing and building a plan that's resilient, that's flexible, that's not so wedded to one particular outcome, and recognize that, yes, we want to know and control the future, but yet we cannot and especially when it comes to our money. So having adequate insurance to protect yourself against risks that could ruin your plan, i.e. homeowner's insurance. If your house burns down, could you pay to build it without homeowner's insurance? Probably not, right? So that's a good case for insurance. Life insurance being the same thing, applying to your income ability, right? Um, estate planning document. These are the things, the tactics, but ultimately what they're getting to is protection, preservation against that unknown future uncertainty.
and I think it's almost in in the word itself. So when we talk about you know ensuring your future, <laughs> it, it can sometimes mean that in a literal sense, and even just the day to day aspects of you know your personal finances. If you own a business or you you know purchase an asset, you want to be able to make sure. There's something that you can fall back on in the event that that doesn't pan out. Like you said, th there could be a natural disaster. There could be an issue that ends up in litigation and then your assets are under attack that way. You know, there, there's a lot of things that can happen, but you're not going to see everything. So if you can just protect what you can in the first place and kind of get ahead it will allow you much more peace of mind and much more ability to, you know, sleep at night. And and we talk about like emotions running high. When you're in a situation that was very preventable at the start, you tend to punish yourself mentally and separate yourself from not so much reality, but separate yourself from the tools that you've already put in place to protect your assets. You, if you don't do that ahead of time, you tend to think of it less when you're in those dire situations. It's like, oh, oh my God, this is so bad right now. But you could prevent, when you're in that situation in the present, you, you could start taking action to make sure it doesn't happen again as well. And I think that's important to think of too. Mm, yeah, so you touched on a couple of themes there. Let me pause for a minute. So who is one that has in control, right? So we talk about this uncertainty of the future and even things in the present, there are things that we cannot control. So as I work with people in their money stories, one of the things that often comes up is what's known, you know, the academics call it internal versus external locus of control. Like, do I think that I am in charge of my own life or do I think that life happens to me? And there tends to be, you know, people we lean one way or the other often do our family culture, our family of origin, upbringings, background, life experiences, all that kind of stuff come into play. So one of the interventions that comes out of the world of financial therapy is called narrative therapy, where it's, it's a way in which reframing your life and you are the author of your life story. We already talked about other things that are under our control, but there are certain things that are, are within our control, our reaction to our circumstances, right? You mentioned a couple of themes there, like good cash flow, like savings habits, discipline, um, you know, adequate protection and insurance against life's perils and risks. You know, these things you can control. And if so, you focus your time and your energy there, you'll find that you're much better prepared for everything that is outside of you. But so narrative therapy is just a way of helping to reframe. So it's a lot of journaling and writing and self-reflection. You know, as I have gone through the training to do this kind of work with clients, the best thing that I ever got out of it was the internal work that I was compelled, I was encouraged uh, to do as a part of that, to understand my money story, where I have come from, my attitude and approaches. It helps me now as a husband, um, you know, someday as I start teaching my little son money lessons, what is that gonna impact me as a parent? So all these things come from understanding yourself better. But that's some, some things to think about when you start talking about this idea of who is in control of your story. And if you feel like 
life or money things always happen to you, one way you can reframe that is this way of journaling and, and thinking about you as the author of your story and just focus on what you can control. I think it's interesting to frame it as, you know, taking back control, writing, you know, your next steps, writing differently what you think of situations, whether you felt like it was happening to you in the past or you feel like this is happening to you right now. Maybe just a slight shift can change that, um, just the perspective of it all. One of the things you did touch on was spousal relationships and I'm sure this happens often especially in situations with whether it's a widow or someone who's uh, divorced and there's there's financial issues within that relationship um, the way we interact with money as spouses or in business partnerships even uh, can often lead to one party dominating the other and I, I've seen this in not my personal life, but the life of others around me. And I've witnessed um, just the complete one-sidedness of some relationships as far as money goes. And um, it, it became a larger topic. I, I saw an article even that discussed the idea of financial abuse and how one spouse can kind of overtake uh, the other in all aspects of finance. Um what do you think would be the best piece of advice for someone who feels like not that money is happening to them, but somebody else is in control of their money situation? How, how can they take back that control or find a way to um, kind of step aside from that relationship and build back a better financial situation? Oh, boy, that is a, a really complicated question. First, let me just pause and say, like, if that feels something that's in your life that is true, like feeling financially controlled or dealing with some of the challenges that might be even financial abuse, like the word that you used, Austin, there, like to step away, to find a safe place, someone that you can trust and, and confide in to be able to do that, right? But it, but if we're talking about couple situations where, right, it's just kind of the everyday, ordinary conflict that people, we humans, work through, right? And there's some tools then that could definitely help. And one of the first ones is a non-judgmental, non-shame-based approach. Money, you see, is not really about dollars and cents, nine times out of ten. It's about the hopes, the fears, the dreams that we attach to them. And in couple relationships, right, sometimes we have slightly different hopes, fears, and dreams, certainly oftentimes different backgrounds, the rules that we grew up with that were sometimes caught and necessarily taught. For many of us, we didn't even know that we had certain belief systems around money, around finances, until we partnered up and somebody showed up in our lives who had very different, we're like, wait a minute, uh, that's not the way this is supposed to go, right? So research has shown that money conflicts are in fact, you know, one of the top rated problems for couples. Money conflict is often worse than other types of conflicts. It can be a common argument starter or worse, be the undercurrent that undergirds, you know, other fights. You may be talking about something like scheduling or work, but really it's about money or the budget or cash flow and things like that. So again, non-judgmental, non-shame-based approach. So using a lot of I statements when you start talking about this, 
I feel X, Y, and Z when you do such and such, right? So letting that, and then also really one of the best ways, if you have an area where it's a little bit cooler teds, calmer temps, maybe, you know, tell me a little bit more about your upbringing. What was money like for you and your family of origin? What are some of your first earliest memories about money, right? How have you done it before? I mean, hopefully these conversations you could have while you're dating or early in a relationship, something like that. But even if not, it's still incredibly interesting and enlightening to learn that about your spouse to find a way. And let me say lastly, like, it's okay if these conversations don't necessarily are perfect from the beginning, okay? You didn't learn how to ride your bike probably the very, very, very first time that you ever got on it or read a book, right? These are skills that are learned, that are grown over time. If it starts to get a little too heated, step away, come back later on. You'll get better with practice and you know finding ways to build shared vision, even though differences and differences will be existing, and that's okay. I think just kind of picking out key points in, in that um, a lot of what you talked about, whether it's you know having I statements and going back to the very just basics of conversational relationships with each other and you know taking time to really understand what each other uh feel in the relationship whether it's about money or even any anything else within the framework of you and your partner whoever they may be um starting there and even some of the things like before you're married uh having that money conversation the conversations that we have around money often a lot of people feel uncomfortable and that's another point of what I try to do is, you know, I, I try and destigmatize or like break apart what really makes it uncomfortable for people to talk about money. And there, there's a huge, um, like people open up almost. And a lot of times when I have money conversations with people, I, I try not to dig too much into the personal aspects of it. But at the same time, that almost comes along with the money conversation. It's like, oh, there's all this stuff going on at home and I just can't focus on money because I'm too worried about this, this, and this. Um, and I think the uncomfortability around money is, you know, everybody has their own take on how they handle money, how they um, interact with money. And that can that can often kind of make the conversations awkward. If, if we're not seeing eye to eye, if we're not having those understandings and building a unity between each other when we're talking about money more often than not there's going to be some things that aren't brought to the table aren't talked about and those yeah. can be key issues um and that's where everywhere you need to enlist a professional right so there i mean marriage and family counselors especially for those still in the military right you get access to a lot of incredible resources for free most of the time, right? And so being able to talk about that, I remember like the MFLAC, I don't remember what that acronym stands for, but there's a military family life counselor or something, you could meet with them off base on your own time, a number of sessions, there's chaplains, there's mental health, there are professional resources that you can get connected with um, outside, you know, you oftentimes you have access to uh, that through your company resources, like having a, just a trusted third party to go to that can be a neutral person who can reflect back and be a thinking partner, even if they're not explicitly talking about money, just deepening a couple's relationship around money can be a big help. And of course, there are financial therapists too who can help be a guide through those harder topics as it relates to money specifically.
I also think it's important, um, and, and this is this is branching into a whole another aspect of things, but we talked about needs versus wants earlier, and really understanding where your priorities lie with money. Um, another thing I like to tell people is like it, it doesn't all have to be doom and gloom. You can uh, set aside these points in your life. You know you want to get married, you want to have a house, you want to have a car, you want to have this, this, and this. But what do you want that's going to fulfill you, that's going to make you feel the most rewarded versus, you know, status quo or um, building up assets and portfolios? That That's great to have, but if you're not feeling fulfilled, like almost from the jump, there's a aspect of, you know, that lack of fulfillment throughout your financial life. If you're not yeah. achieving your own personal, you know, being happy and being wealthy in your emotional finances, you know, like when we, when we talk about building a headspace, if you're not setting aside something to step away, take a breath and really get back into the right mindset, get back to um, what you want to do, it, it can be detrimental to your finances in other places. And it, it sounds crazy not to um, not to focus on all these things like building a retirement nest egg or, you know, buying a house. But at the same time, you might not ever see those goals met if you don't take a little bit of money and enjoy yourself. Because you'll just constantly be in this state of worry or I need to do this, I need to do that. You know, yep. I think it is important to have some of your cake and eat it too. <laughs> oh, I didn't know we were veering into spirituality today, Dawson. <laughs> yeah, there's so much we could go there. Let me, let me park on a couple of things, uh, let you reflect on that. Um, one, yes, there's this idea of what is enough and an idea of contentment. Um, in behavioral research, the academics call this the hedonic treadmill. So in other words, we adapt to our circumstances and become accustomed to them. And therefore, what once satisfied was filled us with joy or awe or just that wow experience suddenly becomes normal, everyday, expected. You may have experienced this like going to vacation somewhere, like you step out the door the first day, you're like, oh, this place is amazing, you know, the views, everything like that. But then you end up being there for a while, whatever that looks like, and then the seventh day you see it or, or whatever, something like that, it's great, but it didn't hit you the same way. So the same way, like you get accustomed to a certain lifestyle, a certain amount of spending, um, a certain kind of house, car, income, all these kind of things. And this applies whether you make very little or very much. Now, there's some research that shows that at a certain point, I mean, academics debate it, whether it's between 70 or 120,000, kind of based on cost of living. And once you start making more than that, to, enough to cover, like you said, all of your needs and some, not all of your wants, right, not unlimited, then there tends to be this leveling off effect where every marginal dollar in wealth and income does not bring the same amount of happiness as before. So defining what the important things are in life and then saving towards those spending up, the balance against the spending today can be a part that becomes, again, attention. We, we've used that word a few times here today. 
today versus tomorrow and how that all goes into it. But again, we shouldn't be surprised when we get into life circumstances and we suddenly become accustomed to them and they're no longer as special. So one of the ways to fight this, to combat this, is to have spikes in spending or experiences. So, you know, that's why saving up for something and anticipating that vacation or that next big purchase can often be just as much fun as the experience itself because you're anticipating it ahead of time. So you can find ways to do that in your monthly spending, your annual spending. It can add up and make a big difference. Sorry, one, one second. Um yeah, so one one of the things that you just talked about, and I, I like to sum the same thing up into really two words. Uh, a lot of times you'll run into diminishing returns, and that idea is it's used in other places. But once you once you've kind of built up, you know, the joy and the um, like experience of that first initial. Um, whether it's wealth or a new car or some, something that you haven't experienced before and now you're at what would be a considerable goal and then you look forward and you're like, well, I've already got this so now like that next dollar isn't so uh, impactful. So when we talk about diminishing returns like that, it's important to keep in mind like it it's great to have goals, but understanding what your big picture is can be a lot different than, oh, I want to make a million dollars or I want to retire before this age. Um, a lot of people kind of overlook the idea that, you know, sometimes it's less about what everybody else says is a ultimate goal and it's more about defining success and happiness personally. Um, and, and that's that's a big tie between those emotional aspects and the financial world. Um, I, I think a lot of people can learn from that. And, and I've seen that topic covered, but not at the same level where it's directly tied to your finances, you know. Um, Money is a tool, ultimately. Uh, that's that's how I frame things. Because um, money can be made and lost. And if you tie all of your emotions to it, it, it can be often to your detriment. Um, so, so definitely, I, I value a lot more on the side of experiences and... Um, building value within my household, whether it's with my family or um, just doing things like my wife and I within the past two, three days have been painting and remodeling the kitchen just because we didn't like the way it looked anymore. Um, those small things can become more rewarding than say, you know, oh, I made this much more money this week or whatever it might be. Um, to this idea that we haven't yet touched on in the world of financial therapy, which is what is our money script? So I referenced this a little bit, like our money story. Let me pause here and kind of just share with the listeners what's going on. So all of us, again, have these rules, these ways that we've been taught. Most of them, just our way of trying to understand life as a kid who doesn't have a concept of it. So there's kind of four primary money scripts. 
Um, this comes from the work of Drs. Brad and Ted Klontz, a father and son team, and Rick Kaler. Um, really great book. If you want to learn more about this, called Your Money Mindset um, by Dr. Brad and Ted Klontz. Published back in uh, 2008. Um, I can give it to Dawson if you can put it in the show notes here. But so there's these four kind of primary themes. So one of them is called money avoidance. One of them is called money status, money worship, and money vigilance. And you can go take the Klontz Money Script Inventory Revised. It's a test out there. You can find it a few different places to kind of give your scores just to see where you are. And the money avoidance, people tend to have this idea that money is difficult or pain to talk about because it brings up feelings of inadequacy or moral or ethical conundrums. Many people who lean towards money avoidance think that rich people are greedy, money is bad, right? We shouldn't have it, or if we have it, we should give it away as quickly as possible. A lot of these philosophies come from that kind of mindset. Money vigilance is um, think of it more as like guarding, protecting, saving. They often feel pain to talk about money because they're taught it's so valuable it should be hidden, right? We don't talk about it. This is this idea that, especially in our Western culture, money's a taboo subject. We don't talk about it. And so when you have money vigilance, right, there's often people who have a hard time spending. They tend to be natural savers and hard for them to kind of like what you're talking about just a minute to enjoy life because there's all these fears, these worries, these anxieties. Uh, money worship or money focus is kind of what they're calling it now. I feel pain to talk about money because it brings up these feelings of inadequacy. Like, I just I just need more. And then, then it will fill that. We reference that with the hedonic treadmill. And then lastly, money status. They often feel pain to talk about money because it's so intrinsically tied to their self-worth. So there'll be the classic, like, keeping up with the Joneses idea. Like, I may have a negative net worth or huge amounts of debt, but I look good, you know, with the clothes or the car or the house. Now, these things are not inherently bad. Your money script is not inherently bad. It just is. And we all have a tendency towards one or some of all of these. And when you understand, back to what I was talking about earlier, like when you know yourself and perhaps know your partner's story as it relates to this, it gives you an insight into kind of the motivations that are driving you oftentimes below your conscious mind. So when you know where you're coming from, it can help make some of these analysis and certainly goal setting and that tension in the present versus the future an easier pill to swallow and understand. I, I love the idea that there's um, not so much archetypes, but there, there's frameworks that you can... You know, what what do you align to? What are, you, what are your real feelings towards money... And I, I'm going to take the test myself after this. Um, so when we talk about, you know, there, there's something that you feel about money that's a common trend. But if you're not talking about it, you'll never know. If you don't kind of make it known that this is how you feel about money, you're not going to align with anybody else who has felt that same struggle. So I think when we talk more about money it's it's so much easier to pick out the things that are commonalities whether it's a positive or negative experience um and this is not so much crowd think but like more so sourcing a community for people who have done the same thing or had the same issues with their finances um in a group setting I don't know if this is as common, but almost like 
an AA for people who are dealing with financial issues, that would be almost the ideal kind of like you have a community that you are holding each other accountable and there are financial topics covered that, you know, you may have never thought of before or solutions that you're all commonly working towards. I think that would be an interesting topic. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever seen anything to that uh, aspect or if you've ever experienced anything as far as like what what could people do to kind of work together towards a common goal. Um, I have a few examples of it uh, like we talked about with Freelance Corporal earlier, which is, you know, building a community around just developing a budget for yourself and sticking to it and then you can get rewarded for it. That's one of the things that we've been pushing there. Um, I think it would be very cool to have those kind of community resources and everyone builds towards the same thing, whether it's budgets or um, just achieving financial success in other ways. Yeah, there's certainly some great examples of you know, uh, groups that have formed uh, around affinity and personal finance. So I've been a member of some of those on like social media platforms and elsewhere where people come together. I mean, people have been meeting and getting together to talk about money. And most of it, in my experience, has been about investments. But our digital age has certainly opened up communities all across. And this gets this idea of an accountability partner becomes a powerful forcing mechanism. Um, Atomic Habits, uh, if you've ever heard or read of that by James Clear, another great book I can highly recommend. He talks about this idea of habit stacking. So when you do a positive behavior associated with a habit that you're trying to build, it's maybe an activity that's not quite as much fun, right? So you reward yourself with that other one every time. So in the same time when you're working with other people towards shared financial goals, and maybe that's just with your life partner, maybe that's with a financial professional I mean, one of the main reasons why clients come to me is because they need that extra level of thinking partner and or accountability along the way towards keeping them towards their goals. And yeah, there's research that has shown when you do a lot of these things, it can bring, you know, compound effects over time. We talk about compounding interest on your money, how it helps it grow, compounding habits and using peer groups, accountability partners, spouses, professionals, things like that can be a part of that solution too. I, I definitely agree with the idea that um, good habits can increase really quickly when they're put together. And you kind of uh, highlighted from uh, Atomic Habits. And it's on my bookshelf. I definitely need to uh, just revisit that a bit and really take some keynotes. Um, one of the things that I think people can take away from that as well is like, whether you have a network of 100 people online or you're talking to a financial counselor or you and your spouse or you and your business partner are working on something, finances can often be this uh, kind of dark hole like we talked about where you don't want to talk about it. You just want to hide it away. You're not alone as much as it seems that way. Uh, and I think that's one of the key takeaways is a lot of times we worry about our own personal financial financial issues, but um, in, in the grand scheme of things, and this is one of the things that uh, is also a recurring theme, is um, 
needs or a, or a social aspect in that um, I'm, I'm not sure how often it's referenced uh, in your personal experiences. Uh, there's a psychological principle that is Maslow's hierarchy of need. Uh, and then what my first guest brought to me was the adaptation of it, which is the Barrett model of Maslow's hierarchy of need, where at some point, once you start to achieve that success, there's a philanthropical aspect of, you know, reaching back down to help others. So there, there is, like we talked about at the start of this episode, there's an abundance of help and resources, whether you're military, uh, a college student, or you're an entry-level worker. There are people out there, um, and when you're making those early financial mistakes, it feels like you're alone, but there, there are a lot of people more than willing to help you and uh, really well-equipped to do so. So sometimes it's as easy as, you know, walking to someone's office or reaching out to a community online, but other times it might be a little more difficult to have that conversation if you never had. I just think it's important and key to keep in mind there are people um, that are out there to help you with your financial situations. Yeah, and just like we said earlier, when you're working through getting better at practicing having money conversations, whether it's with your partner or otherwise... If this is new or hard or different for you, be patient with yourself. It can take some time to get there. But little by little, you know, learning how to do that is a skill. And um, what is the rule? You know, like sometimes the first step is admitting that you need help and then raising your hand and asking for it. You're not the only one, I promise. You are not the only one who has dealt with that financial situation or challenge or question. There is no such thing as a dumb question when it comes to personal finance except for the ones that you don't ask. Yeah. Um, and so, some of the biggest pieces of that are like, you know, it, it's important to know that you can ask for help. Um, also know when you need help. And uh, just sometimes we often will tell ourselves like, no, I can do it myself. I don't need anybody else's help. I, I know how to handle these situations. Yes, the, the young testosterone and <laughs> I don't need any help. I don't need directions. <laughs> and, and well, you, you will pay a financial price sometimes for taking that attitude. So just be aware. You can. There's an easier way. Right, and, and that aligns perfectly with those those emotional aspects or those mental health aspects. Like a lot of people get trapped in this idea of you know I've, I've got this much stuff that I'm dealing with and. You know, it might not be as crazy as so-and-so's situation, but yes, you do have some aspect of things that you can get help with, um, and, and you don't have to have, like, all these issues so that you can go get help. You can get help before you run into issues. When we talked about preventative uh, steps, whether it's insurance or whatever, um, you, you can go see a financial counselor before you're in financial trouble. It doesn't take you... Um, jumping into huge financial risk and having problems to oh, go yeah. get help. Yeah, maintenance mode. Keep it, keep it running, right? You take your car in for regular oil changes. Imagine if the only time you ever took your vehicle in for service is when it was breaking down, right? <laughs> right. There are things that require regular maintenance and ongoing support. Same thing with our financial lives. Uh, I there's so many nuggets that we've um, kind of hit. Where, you know, we talk about financial maintenance can be a tool, 
rather than that emergency situation, you know, you, you can go to the hospital and get checked out before they have to take your leg off. You know, like there, there are so many steps before you're at that dire situation. So I think like we, I've discussed this with people, but you know, having a plan and having, um, just the know-how to admit when there is a problem and even before then plan ahead um, and kind of discuss more openly what your financial concerns are. I didn't start a business before I started asking questions about what needs to happen to start a business. I didn't, um, you know, I didn't join the military before I started asking, you know, what are what are the benefits and what is the pay like? I didn't um, just straight go to college before I started asking what resources are available for college students. Those are those are all aspects that play into um, our day to day lives. If you plan early, it's more likely that you won't have all of the same issues as someone who just jumped in and started right away. Um, not to say that either option is bad, but it helps you uh, to kind of get ahead and ask questions. And there tends to be two kinds of personalities on average generalizing here, okay? So exceptions to this rule exist. Those who just jump right in and, and take action immediately, right, and they learn by doing. And those people who tend to step back and, and do a lot of research before making the decision. And either personality style is going to be impacted when you're dealing with money, Find the one that your naturally tendency is towards, and perhaps back to that accountability partnership, have some other people come alongside you who might have the opposite tendency. So if you're not a researcher, right, maybe your spouse or partner or accountability friend or, or people in those groups can do that for you, fill out that strength. Yeah, and just like also building out what you know are your strengths can be a value because that can build up a positive mindset like we talked about, whether it's habits or just the things that you know you're really good at, if you lean into your strengths, that can be very beneficial. Um, I know I'm much more creative than I am organizational, so a lot of the approaches that I take are, okay, here's a problem. What solutions can I draw on a whiteboard that would get me to a, like the overall best solution? Other people might want to, you know, take it step by step and look at all of their options and then weigh everything all at once. That's that's not me. I'm not, um, I don't think that I would align myself in that manner. What are some things personally that you do to kind of set your goals and do research to um, build financial success yourself? for the whole answer is uh, I got into this profession because I love personal finance so I've always just been naturally curious about it um, you know I can remember my grandfather showing me like how to read the stock tables in the newspaper and figure out dividend payout ratios and then I opened my Roth IRA as soon as I turned 18 and started putting my grass cutting money in there so I mean this has been something that's a natural passion of mine uh, going through a lot of advanced education, the certified financial planner coursework, a master's, you know, the, all the CE, the continuing ed requirements that I have to 
But for those of you who are out there, right, you, you don't need to do all that to get to this level, right? Starting small. Remember that reference that really like that next small little step. So uh, understanding your own money story is, is a piece of that. And I actually corrected my uh, – need to correct myself earlier. I said the book by Drs. Brad and Ted Klontz was – it's actually Mind Over Money. So that's the name of it, Mind Over Money. You can start there. Start by reading just a little bit. And, and maybe a book is too much, right? Find some great personal finance blogs out there. Um, one of the great bit ways to learn is there's this email list called Apex Money. So I get an email from them every day that has some interesting personal finance stuff. And I don't click on them all, but it gives me a chance to learn. Oh, I don't know much about that. Let me click on that. So starting small and learning. I mean, listening to this podcast is a great way to start in, in the stuff that Dawson talks about. So start small, build from there, and keep learning. Be curious. Definitely. Um, and again, like you said, we might be running short on time, but I, I definitely appreciate all of the knowledge, the insight that you've provided today. Um, and you even talked about some of your own personal uh, situations and some of your background. What uh, what should people know as far as like where they can find you and what are some of the things that you're working on uh, that they might be interested in seeing soon? Okay, so uh, my fr- primary role is as a financial planner, so I run my own firm called Wise Stewardship Financial Planning. So you can Google that or just go to Wise Stewardship FP, foxtrotpapa.com. I'll take you there. I have my contact information. A great place to connect with me, though, would be on LinkedIn. I'm very active there, sharing a lot of stuff. And I also host a podcast called Military to Financial Planner. So this is intended for those who are interested in becoming in working as a financial planner, financial advisor, someone in this financial planning space as a career changer out of the military. So military spouses, veterans, active duty. So host that. You can go listen to that where podcasts are. Or you can also find out about the Military Financial Advisors Association, MFAA. So I'm a founding board member of that. That's a group of us who have launched our firms to serve the military community with fee-only fiduciary planning that works in client's best interest and do it in a way that's accessible, whether offering hourly or projects or things like that. So those are kind of the things that I'm most excited about. I also like teach CFP classes at Regent. I do research, um, fintech consulting, education. So I'm involved in a lot of stuff. But uh, the things that I'm most passionate are about, especially for your listeners' audience, is just working with clients and helping other people get into this profession too. Awesome. Uh, and Daniel, uh, definitely, like I said, I appreciate your time. And I think you've shared so much that can benefit uh, anyone who's listening. Uh, I'll definitely have to plug all of your um, social media and all of the things that we've talked about, whether it's the test that you brought up or even just links to find educational resources, books, whatever. Um, and I'll have all that below in the description, but again, Daniel, thank you for your time and I hope you have a great rest of your day and look forward to talking to you again soon. It was a privilege to be here, Dawson. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Spare Change Podcast. Please follow, share, and remember, finance knows no limits.